break 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 through break 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 Today, I'm joined by Marxist economist, political commentator, and professor emeritus at JNU and New Delhi, Prabhat Patnayak. He's also the author of many books, including A Theory of Imperialism, co-authored with his wife, Utsa Patnayak. Professor Patnayak, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you with us today because there's so much I want to get into. Um, I want to focus on some of the themes in your book, A Theory of Imperialism. And for those who aren't familiar, the book is a theoretical analysis and diagnosis of imperialism and its persistence throughout the history of the capitalist political economy. So let's start with imperialism and defining it, something very basic, but maybe not as easy as it sounds. When most people think of imperialism, um, they think of wars and invasions to secure resources for the global north, or they think of Lenin's definition of it as a stage of capitalism. But you argue that imperialism is an essential part of capitalism. So what do you mean when you say imperialism? Well, you know, it is impossible to visualize a closed capitalism. In other words, a capitalism in which there are only the workers and the capitalists and the state which enforces the rules of the game. Such an economy would be completely unviable. In fact, the kind of imperialism that the kind of concept we are using, the imperialism we are talking about, is something which is closer to what Rosa Luxemburg had written about. And this is basically to say that a closed capitalist economy is unviable for two obvious reasons. One is that it requires external markets, which is what Rosa Luxemburg had talked about. And second, that it really requires a whole range of raw materials or primary commodities, which it cannot do without, but it cannot produce either. I mean, the fact remains that capitalism developed and continues to be based essentially in the northern countries which are located in the temperate regions of the world. But capitalism requires a whole range of goods which are producible only in the tropical, semi-tropical regions. The Industrial Revolution was essentially a revolution in cotton textiles, but cotton cannot be grown in, in, in Britain. Therefore, from the very inception, capitalism requires an external zone from which it also acquires crucial raw materials and primary commodities. And this it continues to do to this day. And therefore, it is since it's impossible to visualize a capitalism without this kind of a surrounding territory, which of course, it does not leave in its pristine form, but it rather changes, alters for its own requirements, including cropping pattern and so on and so forth. Uh, it means that imperialism is a perennial phenomenon under capitalism. So you divide, just, just to give people an idea of what some of these terms mean um, before we get into them, you divide the world into the metropole and the periphery, into the temperate and tropical zones. Can you explain very briefly what these concepts mean, what these concepts mean to our viewers and listeners? Well, you know, the, the, the home base of capitalism, 
continues to be in the temperate region, the northern temperate regions of the world, the home base. From there, it actually spreads to other temperate regions, the United States, Australia, Canada, and so on. But the point is that it has always relied on markets, which of course over a period of time became less important, but on raw materials which are available only in the tropical region. I'm not saying all raw materials, some they can grow, but a whole range of raw materials, which they cannot do without, can be grown only in the tropical and semi-tropical regions of the world. And as a result, these regions have got to be dominated. Now, even when capitalism is uh, diffused from the north to these regions, the fact remains that the, the, the bulk of the people of these regions, the peasants, the workers, and so on, continue to suffer the hegemony of capital. In other words, even when capitalism comes, let us say, to India, you can have Indian businessmen, they can be among the world's billionaires and so on, but the Indian peasants and the workers would continue to remain in a subdued state because that is an essential component of imperialism. And can you describe, so you, can you describe, or I guess briefly explain, if briefly is an easy thing to do here, how, because, you know, we often have this debate in the U.S. We, we think of capitalism and imperialism as not necessarily intertwined, right? Like, as in, imperialism is something that is a product, a byproduct of capitalism. But you argue the opposite, that capitalism was really, or, or that imperialism was always necessary, uh, for capitalism. It's essentially like the main component of it. So can you delve into what you mean by that a little bit? Well, you know that that sometimes the relationship of capitalism to the peripheral regions may be such that it is really the, 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 the domination is not visible. At other times, it's clearly visible. For instance, colonialism really marked very clear domination. Now, the post-colonial period was one in which this domination was not really visible. But on the other hand, capitalism systematically attempted this domination by, if necessary, overthrowing elected regimes in the third world countries. Today, however, you don't require such an overthrow. You don't really require the use of political force because under the regime of neoliberalism, you actually have an automatic economic mechanism where most third world governments are more or less uh, bound to follow the kind of policies that capitalism would require them to without necessarily having to put new governments in place in order to force such policies. So now we, we you know, so it would appear that where's the political domination? Where's the military domination? Other than a few regions, like for instance, in the Arab world and so on, you, you really don't have military domination. But on the other hand, there is, there is a spontaneous economic domination of the entire uh, periphery, which is essentially in the tropical and subtropical regions, without requiring any military intervention. 
So, so capitalism today has worked out a system where it can actually dominate this outside regions without really using military force or politically destabilizing governments. Yeah, it's quite a convenient uh, global mechanism. And you talk a lot about the issue of global, globalized finance capital and how essential this is to basically what you just described, this much this less visible form of control. Can you explain what you mean when you say globalized finance capitalism and how essential that is to the function of imperialism today? You, you see, when Lenin was talking about imperialism, he talked about finance capital, but the notion of finance capital that he had was, let's say, British finance capital, German finance capital, French finance capital. Each of these represented a coming together of banks and industry, and each of these had very close relationship with the state, so that each was competing against the other, against its rivals, for acquiring a larger economic territory, what Lenin called economic territory. Now, today, we don't have that. Today, we are not talking about German or British or French finance capital. We are not talking about inter-imperialist rivalry that Lenin was talking about. But in fact, you have a situation where you actually have the coming together of all these into a globalized finance capital. In other words, you have, let's say, banks. Now, banks put money into, into let's say, Latin America. But the money they put is can consist of German money, French money, British money, and so on. In other words, deposits drawn from all across the world are then used by the banks to be invested uh, elsewhere. So, so you have actually uh, a globalized finance capital, which also means that inter-imperialist rivalry is now much more muted. You don't really have big powers competing against one another for world domination to the point where they are even willing to go to war against one another. On the contrary, there is a kind of commonality as far as they are concerned. And as a result, you have this globalized finance capital and globalized finance capital underlies the neoliberal policies to which all the third world countries and so on, first world countries, all the entire world is sucked in. And because of that, they have to follow certain kinds of policies. And these are precisely the policies that I define as imperialism. They were imposed earlier under the colonial regime through the use of force. But now they are imposed by the neoliberal regime without using force because of the domination of global finance capital. If you right. don't follow those policies, globalized finance capital will leave your country, creating a bankruptcy, creating a crisis for you. Yeah, so you have this like uh, group of elites in all of these developing countries that essentially just do that for on the for global finance capital. They like impart these policies. And you mentioned in your book, it's like there's almost this terror they live under of ever doing anything to make this capital leave, which would destroy their country. It's an amazing system. It's a, it's a resilient system in many ways. Um, I wanted to ask though, because you talk about the colonial era being having more direct control, more intervention, but now we've got this less visible, visible settler form of maintaining 
large parts of the world essentially in poverty so that wealthy nations can maintain access to cheap commodities. But I'd like to know your analysis of why it is that the global north ended up dominating the south. Um, or in other words, why did there emerge a metropole and a periphery, periphery in such a way in the first place? Well, you know, it began with the origin of capitalism itself. I mean, capitalism itself is it had dominated the world from the very inception. Uh, all the in India, for instance, the beginning of British colonialism is with the Battle of Classy, which was in 1757. Therefore, the Industrial Revolution itself was really predicated on a kind of world domination. There is one difference between the colonial period and now, which I think is worth keeping in mind. And that difference is that in the colonial period, a lot of the goods which were taken from the colonies were goods which were taken free. In other words, no payment was made for them. They were really part of the tax revenue. You see, what happened is that if you have domination by the metropolitan country, then that country or its offshoot, the colonial government, raises taxes. But precisely with those taxes, it buys goods and sends them off to its home. As a result, a lot of goods from the third world were actually taken free, which is which in the Indian nationalist literature is called the drain, the drain of surplus from the third world to the first world, and that is the taking away of goods gratis. Now, that is something which is really not possible in today's world. Of course, there are various ways in which there is, let's say, such a transfer, unilateral transfer, intellectual property rights and the money that has to be paid for it and so on. But on the other hand, the scale of it is not as important as it used to be in those days. Yeah, that's what people in uh, in America definitely tend to forget is that all of this wealth in the global north is based on essentially stolen goods um, from the past centuries. Uh, in the book, you describe the need for metropolitan capitalism to impose something called income deflation upon the petty producers of the tropics and the concept of supply price and why it's necessary for capitalism to keep supply price down. Um, and this concept actually, uh, your book helped me understand it very well because it used to kind of go over my head. But what are these concepts of income deflation and of the supply price issue? What do they mean? And what are the consequences of this for people in the global south? You know, the kind of goods which are taken by the metropolitan countries from the third world consist of agricultural goods, minerals, and so on. Now, in the case of minerals, of course, it's very clear that when the mineral supply run out, then a particular country ceases to be of interest to them as a supplier of those minerals. You can think of Myanmar, for instance, or Burma. Burma was a source of oil, but when the Burmese oil wells ran dry, then the Burmese were left high and dry, and colonialism then had no particular interest in exploiting Burma for its oil. But think of the tropical agricultural products. Now, the amount of the tropical land mass is really limited. Okay, it is, and this land mass is very densely settled. 
Therefore, if you have to take some goods from it, in that case, you would have to squeeze these goods out from the existing consumption of the people who are settled there. Now, of course, the people may not be consuming these very goods. But on the other hand, if you squeeze the people's incomes and their consumption goes down, then land devoted to the kind of goods they are consuming then becomes available to grow the kind of goods that the metropolis requires. Therefore, it becomes very important to actually keep the consumption of the local population squeezed in order to make more goods available for the metropolis. Even when there can be some increase in output, the increase in output is something which can actually arise at higher and higher costs. That's what I mean by increasing supply price, because obviously then you have to go to inferior land and so on. So, for and, and if you do that, I mean, suppose you did not squeeze the consumption of the local population, then the prices of these goods would rise, and that is going to create inflation in the periphery, there's going to create inflation in the metropolis, and of course, inflation is damaging to the interests of global finance capital, because if there's a rise in prices, then financial assets lose their real value. So, the point is that that in order to obtain the requisite supplies of these goods at non-increasing prices, you have to impose some kind of restriction on consumption. And the way to restrain consumption is by deflating or by compressing the incomes of the local population. Now, in colonial times, this happened through the taxation mechanism. If you took away the kind of, you know, income of peasants through your enormously heavy tax revenue, in that case, the peasant naturally consumed less. And similarly, other segments of the population. Today, what you do is that you impose a similar income compression or income deflation, not through the taxation mechanism, but through fiscal austerity by reducing government investment or expenditure in rural areas and so on. There are various ways in which incomes of the third world population are compressed under neoliberalism so that more of these goods, as required by the metropolis, can be taken from these countries without giving rise to inflationary pressure. It's incredible. It's like mind blowing. I'm curious, like, to think about the fact that these that capitalism literally needs to intentionally keep masses of people in the third world in poverty in order for people in the first world to continue to have access to these goods. And it goes against, of course, everything we're told by, about policies in the third world. And this is kind of just more of a speculative question, but do the people who make these policies know what they're doing and they just lie? Or are they actually convinced that, you know, capitalism can develop the third world? Like they must know what they're doing. No, but, but, but you know, I mean, they, they probably have no understanding of the mechanism through which it works. You know, in other words, many of them are very well-meaning people. And there is a general feeling, not just about today, but, but generally, for instance, there is a feeling that, look, uh, the reason why you have underdevelopment today is because, let's say, roughly all countries were in a certain state. They began from a certain position in 
and from that position some countries advanced and others got left behind and as a result these others if they are allowed to advance or is they helped to advance in that case you would find that the differences would slowly disappear and the people of the third world would also become well off but you see that's a mistake because those countries which advanced actually gave a parting kick to the other countries precisely for instance i mean if you look at the origin of modern mass poverty the fact that 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 exports from the metropolis really led to the displacement or the unemployment of local artisans and local craftsmen and so on and therefore created a huge reserve army of labor which had nowhere to go except to crowd on land and as a result reduce the incomes of everybody not just themselves but also of the peasants and then the same peasants were taxed away and their goods were taken to the metropolis as part of the drain this meant that even i mean under colonialism itself the development of capitalism gave a parting kick to the other countries which are not really left where they were they were actually made worse than they were in other words you know as as andre gunda frank very well known development economist earlier had said that we have to think in terms of the development of underdevelopment mm, so, that's a good so, that's a good and, way and, to and, and the same process goes on even today and and people don't have an understanding of it you know they may be well meaning but they don't have an understanding of it. So you mentioned reserve army of labor. So I think it's a good time to ask about this. Um why is it that capitalism requires a certain level of unemployment to function? And how does the need for this unemployment, this reserve army of labor differ between the periphery and the core? Um and is one more crucial to capitalism in terms of disciplining workers than the other? And then I'll add on to that. I know this is a very long question, but I'll on add on to that. How does the issue of migration fit into this okay you know there is a, there are if you like in world capitalism two reserve armies of labor as you said rightly there is one which is in the metropolis itself and there is one which is in the periphery now i'm not saying that every individual who's unemployed is is functionally required to be unemployed by metropolitan capitalism not at all i mean i'm i'm, I'm not saying that but you do require a substantial reserve army of labor in the periphery and the reason for these two they 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 play different roles one of them as you said rightly plays the role of disciplining the workers you know ask yourself the question why under 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 slavery people worked because if they did not then they were kind of you know uh, whipped and punished and put into stocks and so on and so forth. under feudalism people worked again because of coercion of that kind under capitalism you don't have punishment of that kind nobody nobody puts you into jail if you don't work but they simply throw you out mm. from the job now this throwing you out from the job is something which must pinch you otherwise otherwise you know i mean it is not a disciplining device and the it pinches you because there is an army of unemployed if there was complete full employment and the capitalism then if one employer threw you out another would employ you but on the other hand when you have 
a permanent reserve army of labor. It plays a number of roles. It, it makes sure that the real wages of the workers, wage demands are kept in check. It makes sure that money wage demands are kept in check, which actually contributes to the stability in the value of money. And above all, it introduces work discipline among the workers. So a capitalist country with full employment is impossible to visualize. Even if it can be there for a short while, it really is not a sustainable phenomenon. But on the other hand, the reserve army of labor in the third world plays a very different role. Namely, that, you know, that, that if there is any shock to the system, then you really require a group of people who can be called price takers. You know, I mean, suppose it is the case that in the advanced capitalist countries, workers demand higher wages. They may not, but suppose they demand higher wages. Historically, they have. In that case, without capitalist profits being squeezed, if profits are not squeezed, but higher wages are obtained, then you have inflation. And if you have inflation, then again, the stability of the value of money becomes, becomes uh, an issue. Therefore, you really require a bunch of people onto whose shoulders these burdens can be put. In other words, because of which inflation can be kept in check. They are called price takers. Now, therefore, you need a bunch of price takers. And typically, the third world producers have always been the price takers. In other words, they simply get whatever is given to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, and therefore, once the metropolis, say workers, capitalists, they have their own class struggle. The outcome of this class struggle is that a certain amount is left for the raw material producers, and they have to take whatever is given to them. That's why they are price takers, and for 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 them to be price takers, it is important that they should be placed in the midst of a huge army of unemployed, underemployed mass. Otherwise, they are also going to demand higher prices and so on. And that is going to destabilize the system. So because they are placed in the midst of this, this mass, they act as price takers, therefore they stabilize the system. It's, um, it's been incredibly put. Um, you, you say that capitalism at the core cannot do without an ac access to a number of primary commodities. Can you give some examples to our listeners and viewers who might not be aware of the extent to which the metropolitan core depends on the outlying regions for certain commodities? Yes, I mentioned that the Industrial Revolution itself required primarily a commodity that was not producible anywhere in the, in the, in the temperate regions. That was cotton. So, so you have fibers. Fibers are not producible in, in the northern temperate countries. They may be producible, let's say, in, in, in the southern United States, but what they can produce is too little for the requirements of the metropolis. So, so fibers, sugarcane, you have, um, you know, uh, a whole range of fruits and vegetables which are not available, which cannot be produced as, as far as the North is concerned. And you have therefore a tobacco, I mean, a whole range of tea, coffee, cocoa, and so on, be beverages. So all these commodities, you know, fibers, beverages, tobacco, and so on, simply cannot be produced in the North. They simply cannot be produced. And no matter 
how much technological progress goes on. They simply cannot be produced because if you started producing, uh, producing them in controlled climatic conditions, it will be much too expensive, if at all you can do it. <laughs> so, so for that, you really require the South uh, to be available to you. And, and when you take those, I mean, if you have to grow tea, in that case, the land for growing tea has to be taken, let us say, from food reintroduction. And that is something which would mean reduced food availability as far as the local population is concerned. And that's the impoverishment and income deflation I was talking about. Yes. And so I want to, from there, I want to go to this issue that, you know, I, you probably, I doubt you follow the internal debates on the left of the U.S., but... There is this growing common belief in the U.S. among uh, like progressives and people who might consider themselves left that we can have a high standard of living in the U.S., we can have universal health care, we can have all the commodities we want, somehow we can have all this without imperialism the way it is right now. Like we can have this kind of reformed capitalism. And so I wanna to go to this issue of, you know, Denmark, right? Emmanuel Wallerstein once used Denmark as, this as an example and argued that the whole world can't live like Denmark. And to maintain the quality of life people have in places like Denmark requires much of the world to remain in poverty because it's still capitalism. And your argument seems to be consistent with this theory. So can you explain why capitalism requires keeping most of the world in a state of subsistence and misery? You know, when when I used to be a student, uh, whenever I raised any progressive questions and, and so on about this development, underdevelopment and so on with my friends, many of them would say, oh, but you know, look at the Scandinavian countries. They never had mm -hmm. any colonies. So how can you say that capitalism requires colonialism or requires imperialism and so on? You see, the people miss the point that the Scandinavian countries are not self-sufficient. In other words, the Scandinavian countries thrived on the backs of British colonialism. You see, Britain imported a lot. Typically, the way British colonialism worked is that Britain left its own markets free for other countries, let's say United States, Germany, continental Europe, and so on, uh, so that they could export to Britain. Britain itself exported to the colonies to balance its accounts, okay, because obviously otherwise it would be getting uh, indebted to all these countries exporting. And Britain imported from the colonies all these goods I'm talking about, which then got distributed to all these other countries, which had been exporting to, 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 to Britain. Therefore, you have to look at capitalism as a global system. You don't have to look at capitalism in terms of the fact that every country requires a colony, not at all. You know, in, in other words, you require the colonial relationship, but you don't need every country to be a, a kind of colonizing country. And that's true of Denmark, that's true of, of the Scandinavian countries and so on. <laughs> That's a, no, it's an excellent point. There Canadian is this belief. Countries, you see, oh, the go Scandinavian ahead, go ahead. countries can't grow. The Scandinavian countries can't have cocoa. They can't have tea. They can't have coffee unless these commodities are imported from the tropics. They cannot grow cotton. They they cannot have tobacco and so on. So so the point is that they are not self-sufficient. So we have to look at exactly how uh, it, it it fits into the overall capitalist system.
We have to get you on the call on a call with Bernie Sanders so you can explain that. Because, <laughs> um, you know, he's well-meaning, but he is always using the, you know, Denmark. It's always Denmark, but in Denmark, you know, it's always, that's always the example in the Netherlands. Why can't we be like the Netherlands? Um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, closer to home to you. You're in India. And you recently signed this letter harshly condemning the Indian government for its mishandling of the COVID crisis. And you've been a critic of this kind of rising fascism in India as well. Can you discuss this as well as, I guess, the farmers' protests and the nature of the current Indian government and perhaps how those two things fit together? See, I would call the current Indian government a neo-fascist government. Now, when I say neo-fascist, I don't mean that it is a, an exact replica of the 1930s fascism. And obviously, there are differences which arise with the passage of time and so on. Uh, and, 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 and even the means of coercion are quite different from those days. You don't have concentration camps in India, etc. But the point is that nonetheless, it really has its features of fascism, which are very close proximity between the government and big corporate capital, particularly certain houses within the big corporate capital. Very, very close relationship, which you had in Germany, for instance. Look at Visconti's film, The Damned, and, and in fact, it's a very good film that actually discusses this. Uh, so, so close nexus between the corporates and the government the use of the government by the corporates in order to squeeze the workers to take away their rights so that they cannot organize themselves, they cannot demand higher wages and so on, and also the peasantry, because of which are the peasant protests. Uh, then you have uh, all this is sustained. I mean, obviously, if a government went to the electorate with this kind of an agenda, it wouldn't get voted, but it is sustained by a kind of, you know, a divisive agenda in which a small minority group is targeted as the other. And of course, hatred against that minority group is typically generated in order to mobilize the people on a, around a discourse that can exclude the discourse of uh, material conditions of life, the discourse of classes, the discourse of workers versus capitalism, the discourse of income and so on. So uh, the idea is to, is to shift the discourse in that particular manner. The other feature, which again it shares with fascism, is that you know fascism is not just state repression. It is state repression which is backed up by mass protests organized by fascist groups on the streets. So, so, so you, you know, in, in other words, it's not a military dictatorship. It's not something which just represses you, but it actually generates a movement. Um, and and, and that in, in that, again, the Indian uh, situation, very, very similar to what you found in the 1930s. So it has similarities with classical fascism. But on the other hand, it's not exactly identical with classical fascism. So I call it neo-fascism. Now, neo-fascism, because it works in corporate interests, one of its main goals has been to open up peasant agriculture to corporate encroachment. In fact, this is something which happened under neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has this agenda that, that, that corporate should be allowed to enter peasant agriculture. 
both multinational agribusiness as well as local corporates. But the point is that no government in India really earlier had the guts to, 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 to carry through this agenda of uprooting the peasants in order to make peasant agriculture or the space of peasant agriculture available to the corporates. But this government thinks it can get away with it because of its appeal, which is against the Muslims and, and, and so on, because of its general fascistic agenda. And that's why it is actually now going ahead, uprooting the peasants. They brought in three bills. You see, for instance, for a very long period of time, the peasants were assured of a minimum support price. Now, the bills do not talk about any minimum support price, which means the prices collapse, the peasantry disappears. So the whole idea is to squeeze the peasantry to a point where the peasants themselves would virtually become agricultural laborers uh, who would be op you know, operating at the behest of corporate capital. And the peasantry is, of course, opposed to this. And for that reason, they have been for more than six months uh, carrying out a, a, a massive campaign all over the country, enjoying considerable sympathy from the population. Um, that's incredible and uh, it's huge. Uh, I wanted to shift because you mentioned neoliberalism. So I think it's a good segue to the issue of neoliberalism and this kind of neoliberal order does seem to be decaying around the world. Um, you know, what will come as an alternative to neoliberalism? What can come as an alternative? And are you worried about the rise of fascism? Because this, is it, this isn't just happening in India, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's an international phenomenon. Yeah. It's happening in lots of countries. Yeah. Uh, you see, I think that's a very interesting and important question. Neo, okay. In the colonial period, you actually found capitalism having a big boom. You know, people refer to the period roughly from the middle of the 19th century right until the First World War as a long boom of capitalism, really kind of big boom. And that boom was sustained by colonialism because the Britain, which was the leading power of that period, sold in the colonial markets. And of course, it got from the colonies not only an equivalent of what it sold, but more than what it sold, which is what I was talking about earlier. And this extra was then invested in the temperate regions where there was diffusion of capitalism. Okay, so 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 that was really a long period. In the interwar years, I think the colonial markets had got exhausted. And, and, and therefore, you do not really find them playing the same role. And I believe that was a major reason behind the Great Depression of the 1930s, namely that the entire uh, arrangement on which the long boom had been predicated collapsed. In the post-Second World War period, you had state intervention. Okay, governments ran fiscal deficits and so on. John Maynard Keynes, who was an English economist who had suggested this, was a dominant intellectual figure. And because of that, you actually had again another really pronounced boom. That is, many people call it the golden age of capital, high rates of growth, etc. So the state came in as a substitute for the colonial markets, as far as the markets were, were, were concerned. But after that, 
I mean, of course, you had now the emergence of globalized finance capital that does not like fiscal deficit, that does not like state intervention. Even in Keynes's time, it had not liked fiscal deficits and state intervention, but it had to provide room for all this in the post-Second World War period when there was an enormous upsurge of radicalism. There's a socialist threat. There was working class militancy in the advanced capitalist countries. Workers were not going to go back to the interwar period of depression, etc. Labour Party defeated Winston Churchill in Britain and in France and Italy and so on. The communist parties were the most powerful political forces. Finance capital had made a compromise and it was weakened by the war itself. But with the emergence of globalized finance capital, once more you have a situation where uh, government intervention is really frowned upon, fiscal deficit is frowned upon. And as a result, the state ceases to be able to provide that kind of a market that it had done during the so-called golden age. But on the other hand, under neoliberalism, it doesn't mean that growth disappeared. And it's an important question, how come you still had growth? But that's because of the fact that you had what you call asset price bubbles. You, you had, you know, the, the chief mechanism for growth under neoliberalism is asset price bubbles, particularly in a country like the United States, which is the most powerful, the biggest economy in the world. You had the dot-com in the 90s. You had the... With the collapse of those bubbles, in fact, and, and no comparable bubbles were formed. You can't really order a bubble to be formed. You actually had once more uh, world capitalism being sunk in a crisis. Now, from that long crisis, Currently, you know, I mean, there was there was really our world capitalism has been sunk in a long cry for a long crisis for a very long time, but now you have the emergence of uh, a new kind of possible new new version which is being tried out, and that new version, which really began to make itself felt during the pandemic, and now is going to last beyond the pandemic is one in which. In the advanced capitalist countries, you are going to have the, uh, the revival of state intervention. But in the third world countries, you are not going to have the revival of state intervention, but you are going to have what is called fiscal austerity. That there, the process of income deflation is going to be continued and accentuated because of fiscal austerity. You know that during the pandemic itself, while in the advanced countries, almost 20% of GDP in the United States and elsewhere also, quite significant amounts, proportions, were spent uh, in providing rescue and relief and so on to the people affected. In most of the third world, the proportion spent was trivial. In India, it was actually just 1% or maximum 2 perhaps. And the same is true of, of, of other, other third world countries. Now, of course, this was something which, which the fascist governments uh, uh, didn't mind doing. But the point is that you have this dichotomy. I believe that dichotomy is going to spill over even after the pandemic is over, where you will have a revival as far as the advanced countries are concerned. Joe Biden's proposals, for instance, are meant to revive the U.S. economy 
and we see, of course, the economies of other advanced countries. But on the other hand, any possible inflationary threats that may arise with this revival would be kept in check by imposing massive fiscal austerity and therefore income deflation on the third world populations. So, so this dichotomy is now going to characterize, I believe, the coming days, months, and years. Yeah, I'm witnessing that. You know, I live in the Middle East, and I can see the the outcome of of how people, how governments here have responded to the the COVID destruction of the economies is much much different. Mostly because they also just don't have the money. They're a poor country. They just don't have the money to give to people or to do infrastructure plans the way that you know the U.S. might. Um, I you know since we are talking about COVID, I think it's interesting that. You know, famines throughout history are often blamed on on communism and on, on leftism. But with COVID, it's interesting because the worst of it happened in three countries with these right wing populist, if you want to call them neo-fascist type uh, leaders who refused to prioritize public health with Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro. Um, why do you think that is? Why is it that these were the worst hit by COVID? Yes, uh, but let me just go back a little. Oh, go you ahead. Know, yes, this, of course. <laughs> this idea of famines being big, uh, blamed on the left is a fundamentally wrong idea. Because of course, of course. The, Please explain what it's world, as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, the world's, world's worst famines have occurred under colonialism. Uh, you had the Irish famine, the famous Irish famine. Of course, Ireland's population was relatively small, but as a proportion of population, the largest proportion that died was in the Irish famine, mm -hmm. and because of which there was huge migration to the United States and so on. So, uh, so, so, so that is one. Okay, and 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 obviously Ireland was under British control. I mean, English control. Uh, the secondly, in India, the biggest famine you have ever had was in 1770 when the Bengal came under British rule, when Bengal, East India Company rule. When Bengal came under East India Company rule, the entire state of Bengal or the presidency of Bengal had a population of about 30 million, of which 10 million people died in that famine in 1770. One third of the population, as much as 10 million. Throughout the colonial period, it, it, it was just punctuated by massive and terrible famines. And of course, when when just before independence, the biggest famine was in 1944. You know, when you had another famine in Bengal, in which three to four million people died. So, so it is completely wrong. I mean, my point is that blaming it on the left forgets the fact that actually the biggest famines have occurred under colonialism and, and you know this is something and therefore by my reasoning under capitalism all right now coming to the substantial question which you raised about you know that okay i think i think basically public what you require is a public health care system now under the neo-fascist regimes the public health care system tends to get run down 
And because it tends to get run down, people are forced to rely on private healthcare system for which they don't have enough resources, because of which many of them have to suffer. Now, this is true everywhere. This is true of Brazil. This is true of India. This is true of Trump as well, even the United States. The fact remains that actually there was a running down of public health care system because, because Trump was a great believer in, in, in private health care. Now, the, there is nonetheless a difference, as I mentioned, the, 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 that even under Trump, there was a certain amount of transfer to the ordinary people. But in the third world countries, even that was not there. So third world neo-fascism is particularly dangerous as far as the people are concerned, compared even to first world neo-fascism. Because there again, you have to have some degree of sensitivity to public opinion, etc., which a Modi or a Bolsonaro just doesn't care about. That's an interesting point. Um, I want to move to for a moment, since we're going from one part of the world to the next, to China. Because, um, you know, critics of China, especially as this new Cold War between the U.S. and China uh, ramps up, Critics of, critics of China are often describe its behavior in places like Sri Lanka or Africa as imperialist. Now, having written the book on the theory of imperialism, I'm curious what your response to that criticism of China is. Is it an imperialist country? Can it be an imperialist country? Is that even possible? You know, there is something, okay. I mean, I would not call China an imperialist country, uh, but the point is, can it be? Whether it can be or not is something which, of course, uh, would depend upon whether the kind of structure the Chinese economy has developed would make it essential for it to actually rely on uh, these kinds of methods for, 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 for keeping itself going. Now, I think, okay, I mean, China does not have the same problem that... Uh, temperate countries have by our theory, where it doesn't grow uh, the bulk of its own raw materials and so on and so forth, which it has to get from other countries. Uh, therefore, I think the idea of the Chinese being entirely dependent or, or substantially dependent on imports of raw materials, the way that capitalism is dependent is an idea which I don't find very persuasive. Uh, secondly, I mean, to this, to this day, to my knowledge, there is no country that is actually as, I mean, you know, the imposition of, let's say, income deflation. Now, I don't believe the Chinese are imposing income deflation on Bangladesh or imposing income deflation on Sri Lanka and so on. So I see no visible signs on the basis of which I would call China an imperialist country. And this is quite apart from the fact that I'm left wing and, you know, etc. I have sympathy for China. I'm not even getting into that. But purely in terms of the symptoms of, of imperialism, I don't find those symptoms. Okay, But, I mean, obviously, uh, any country can can kind of you know become a, a rogue imperialist country depending on nature's government and that's a separate issue but if you're talking about systemic pressure because when one is talking about imperialism western imperialism it's not a question of which government is in power whether it's a good government or bad government whether it's a progressive government or a reactionary government it is made necessary because of the systemic demands, okay, because the system requires it. While I don't see that 
happening in the case of China, certainly not as you. Now, I want to turn to the issue of sanctions for a moment because the you know this has become a huge tool of the U.S. is imposing sanctions on countries that you know refuse to, I guess, submit to American interests or hegemony or whatnot. So I'm curious, how do sanctions fit into the concept of imperialism as you define it? Yeah, you know, I was talking earlier about globe in the period of neoliberalism, with the hegemony of global finance capital, there is no requirement for any kind of military political intervention. But occasionally, countries try to get out of it. When a country tries to get out of it, you see, one of the one of the real subtle things, one of the remarkable things about this system, is that getting out of it becomes extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. You know, suppose suppose tomorrow a country, suppose tomorrow India wanted to get out of it, and I believe it's essential to get out of it in order to have an autonomous development. And getting out of it would mean to start with to put capital controls. Now, suppose India put capital controls on the outflow of finance, because the moment a government adopts any progressive pro-people policies, there would be a fear in the minds of financiers that is a leftist government, and therefore they would start taking their money out of the country, uh, causing a big financial crisis. So that is one very important deterrent. But suppose the government persists with that. If the government persists with that, then if there is a control on money being taken out, then money would not come in. If money does not come in, in that case, countries like India that have big trade deficits would find it very difficult to finance those trade deficits. And if so, then you'd find that many essential goods simply cannot be purchased. Okay, Until you can develop domestic capacities to produce those goods, large numbers of goods cannot be purchased. If they cannot be purchased, then a large number of people would find that the total stock of goods is something which has shrunk. And this would create uh, problems uh, uh, for the government's own credibility if even if the government is voted to power by workers and petty producers, etc., uh, even then, those would be the classes most seriously hit by it. And therefore, they, I mean, the government would lose credibility precisely with his own support base, which would force it to backtrack. Now, to this, if you have the addition of sanctions in the case of so-called rogue countries, then the entire problem of such a government becomes ex even more difficult. So the transition out of that state of, of, of being stuck in an imperialist arrangement becomes even more difficult. And consequently, sanctions, they come in at a certain stage when a country is trying to get out of imperialism. But on the other hand, when the sanctions come in, they have this business of discrediting that government in the eyes of its own own support base. And I guess I know I know everything doesn't fit neatly into this perfect box, right? But I guess would you also uh, include the you the recent the U.S. wars of I guess the recent last couple of decades, Iraq, Libya, these kind of U.S. attempts at regime change in Syria and Venezuela. Would you fit that into your analysis as well in the same in the same vein? Oh yes, ab absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, 
when the twin towers came down the first question which was raised in the united states upper echelons you know among is what can we get out of it mm-hmm. and it was they thought that was a very good time in order to catch hold of uh, iraq and the iraqi oil reserves and so on things didn't work out the way they had planned but on the other hand that was something which was uppermost in their minds uh now therefore the weapons of mass destruction which saddam hussein were kind of you know invented and that provided an excuse for uh, going into iraq you look at all these countries iraq libya even venezuela all of them are really oil producing countries so there is there is a remarkable kind of uh, hunger for middle eastern oil Mm. Venezuela of course there's a dual problem because not only is it oil producing but Venezuela is trying to get out of this entire arrangement which I was talking about uh, and consequently it becomes very important to to so called teach these countries a lesson they are so called rogue countries and you have to teach them a lesson so that the rest of the third world does not consider doing a similar uh, thing of getting out of this arrangement and that's why there has been a particularly venomous Uh, attack on 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 these countries on of course the arab world uh, but what is more also on countries latin america which recently has shown some kind of resistance to this imperial arrangement yeah so, and so it's interesting it, oh go ahead sorry continue your thought no, no, i think it actually fits into what i was tra- trying to develop earlier namely this is an arrangement where okay this is an arrangement which normally operates without any force without any political compulsion and so on through the sheer working of the economics but if there is a country that actually dares to come out of that arrangement in that case force and sanctions and all these things the uh, regime change etc become relevant so they become it's, relevant not in the first remove but at second or third remove it's funny that you were talking about this at this particular moment every so often the electricity will go out i'm in lebanon <laughs> and that's a consequence of a lot of the kinds of things that we're talking about right now um the de-development of the electricity sector here uh but you know i it's interesting too cuz there's countries like for example russia i mean there's other i i like that you noted with venezuela there's this added thing of venezuela trying to get out of the arrangement it has this you know socialist government and that that you know is a double issue it's not just the oil it's also that it's trying to get out of the arrangement but then it just seems like any country whether it doesn't matter if it's leftist or not like russia is certainly not a leftist government right but it's um a target of us imperialism because i guess it won't submit in certain ways um so it's interesting it's interesting it's not a requirement for the government to necessarily be leftist anymore to That's attract right. the yes, ire yes. of america yes leftist governments of course would would attract the ire of america because they are the government that would be trying to get out of the arrangement but even if the government is not leftist but is a thorn in the flesh as far as imperialism is concerned then they would be equally opposed to such a government of course so um i guess in that on that note is you know if i can attempt to find some hope in all this can you imagine a world without imperialism and how how can the global south resist or overcome imperialism i know it's a very big question that can't be answered easily but 
<laughs> no, I, I certainly imagine a world without imperialism. I don't believe mankind is forever doomed to this kind of an existence. Uh, so I certainly visualize a world without imperialism. I certainly visualize a time when people in the third world would be enjoying their share of, 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 of rights, would be enjoying a material standard of living that enables them to really enjoy the freedoms which 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 allow you to develop yourself and so on of course i i see that i do not visualize people say in india or or in africa remaining in the kind of uh, uh, oppressed state in which they currently are uh, but on the other hand it really requires struggle it's not something which is going to happen uh, it's not going to happen through the interventions of capitalism but it will happen only by overthrowing by 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 doing away with the interventions of capitalism and that is something which really, as I said a moment ago, that that would have enormous transitional problems. Of course, any country trying to get out of it, as we can see in the case of Venezuela or Bolivia and so on, countries trying to get out of it would be facing very serious problems. Look at even, look at even sort of, you know, uh, moderate governments like Lula. And, mm. and look what happened to Ecuador and so 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 any such government is going to face very serious transitional problems. These transitional problems have to be met and overcome. I believe it's very important for that, for the revolutionary forces to actually educate the people, the workers, the peasants, and so on, so that they are willing to appreciate, understand, make sacrifices required to come out of this. You see, it would be wrong for the re a, a revolutionary party, by that I mean a party that believes in coming out of this arrangement, to tell people, to give them false hopes, to, 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 to in fact, underestimate the problems, to, 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 to tell them, okay, when we are in power, everything will be hunky-dory. That would be wrong. It is important for people to understand, to participate, and to liberate themselves. There are no liberators from outside. But I think that is the real lesson. I mean, I think, but I, I'm very hopeful that this is going to happen. I'm, I'm for, 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 for instance, extremely thrilled and enthused by the present protest in India. Because, you know, no political party organized them. They are actually peasants themselves. And in the process of their protest, many of the social cleavages, for, for, for instance, these peasants belong to upper castes, while the agricultural laborers belong to the depressed caste. There's always a contradiction between them, naturally between, between the peasants and agricultural laborers. But on the other hand, this is a protest in which the agricultural laborers joined in. So, so you find social cleavages being overcome. You find that, that the peasants developing on their own a kind of consciousness, which earlier they lacked. Again, the consciousness of Hindu-Muslim, you know, earlier, this current government that we have came to power because it engineered a communal riot in a place not very far from Delhi, in which the very people who are today participating in the peasant movements were actually participating in that communal riot against Muslims. Wow. Okay, wow. But on the other hand, now they see that actually that is not the way to go. So so it can have enormous educative value. And, you know, I mean, the, 
imperialism, capitalism, fascism, they're all the time out to subvert people's struggles. Mm-hmm. People have to be on their guard against such subversion. No, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in the U.S., one of the ways that these forces attempt to subvert or divert attention, I should say, from the issue of class is through the use of identity politics, racism, et cetera. And you mentioned caste, which is why I'm bringing this up. Can you explain why capitalism is so essential to all these other kinds of exploitation, whether we're talking about racism or gender exploitation or caste exploitation? You know, in, in India for a very long time, there has been this debate that that caste exploitation is more important than class and so on. I think that's a false debate for the following reason, that, you know, that that you can have caste exploitation, you can have gender exploitation. But on the other hand, capitalism is the one that actually is a dynamic element. It is the one that takes all these exploitations and gives them a certain character because because you cannot understand today without understanding capitalism. There is no exploitation which is left in its pristine state. Capitalism uses all of them and capitalism is forever changing. Capitalism has moved from competitive capitalism to monopoly capitalism to state monopoly capitalism and so on. And in the process of this change, it also changes all these other forms of exploitation. So it's a dynamic element. You cannot understand gender oppression. You cannot understand caste exploitation without understanding the role of capitalism in it. it is, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that explains the movement of these, these exploitations. And then I want to like shift back a little bit. Um, I know I have a million questions for you, but you, I have to ask you these questions while I have you. Um, you know, in, in your book, you describe your, the European colonization of the Americas as not necessarily as, as not imperialism, but rather what you call a diffusion of capitalism from Europe to other temperate areas of the world. And I never heard it explained that way. So can you can you explain that a bit and describe what you mean by that? Because it, it's it's an interesting and much different way than I would have than I've ever seen this issue described. You see, the colonization of the Americas or of the temperate regions had two dimensions. One was vis-a-vis the indigenous populations that existed there. The other was vis-a-vis those who became settlers. Now, vis-a-vis those who became settlers, it certainly was not imperialism because those who became settlers really drove away the people who were the original inhabitants, got hold of their land, cultivated that land, enjoyed the standard of living that was reasonably high, and that actually pushed up the wage rate in Europe, because if it is the case you can migrate to to, to America and earn $100, in that case, nobody in Europe is going to accept less than $100 to stay on. So so the point is that the what an economist would call the reservation wage in Europe went up, and this was responsible also for the uh, fact that the working class in Europe got some benefits out of the Industrial Revolution later, I mean, you know, during the 19th century. Uh, but the point is, as far as the local population was concerned, namely the initial residents were concerned, who were herded into reservations and so on, of course, as far as they are concerned, it was an act of colonialism. It was an act of aggrandizement. 
and and so i would just like to distinguish between the two but the only thing is that they were put into reservations uh, in in other places in 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 crowded tropical areas you could not put the indian population in 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 some kind of a reservation because there were hundreds of millions of them and therefore what happened was colonialism operated on the backs of that population which continued to function the way it was doing before growing crops or you know etc but on the other hand in these new countries because the land man ratio was much much less adverse uh, than let's say in the in the densely populated tropical colonies you actually found that that colonialism vis-a-vis the original inhabitants took on a very different role it's it's um you know I, I, you mentioned the wages then, and I actually wanted to bring this up too, because I've heard this argument made uh, in some progressive circles in the US. And so I'd like you to address it. This idea that workers in the temperate zones, the global north, the west, whatever word you want to use, the core, um, should have higher wages because they do more skilled labor. Um, I disagree with this. I'm sure you do too, but it's a common thing that you do hear among progressives in the U.S. So could you could you address that issue of the idea that workers somehow the wages with the wage differences make sense because workers are more skilled in the West? No, you see the the point is that okay, there is there is a very fundamental property or, or difference between the tropics and the temperate regions. Everything that is produced in the temperate regions can be produced in the tropics. In fact, even crops which can be grown only in cold climates can be grown, let's say, on on top of hills in mm-hmm. India or in China and so on. So, so that you know, almost everything that can be produced in the temperate region can be produced in the tropics. This is true of industrial goods. Okay, this is true of agricultural goods and so on, but not vice versa, which is the basis of a theory of imperialism. Everything that can be grown in the tropics cannot be grown in the tro- in the temperate region. And if so, then how is it that we actually have this division of labor in which the bulk of the so-called skilled work is in the north and the bulk of the unskilled work is in the south? I believe behind that division itself, is the fact of imperialism is 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 the fact you know is 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 the fact that for a very long period of time in any case industrialization was not possible in the south okay because of the fact that it was colonized and then it was open to free trade and so on and so forth therefore it was not possible while in the north in britain for instance you know before the industrial revolution you actually had immense protection protection against indian textile imports so much so that people wearing indian cotton textile goods in britain for a very long period of time for 150 years were actually subject to imprisonment and punishment you couldn't even wear indian cotton clothes okay so so the advanced countries particularly the leading country of that time britain actually imposed severe protection in order to bring up their own industries and having brought 
brought up their own industries, then they ensured that the other countries did not have the chance to impose any, any protection. Now, today, exactly the same thing is happening, namely that, you know, that, that under neoliberalism, goods as well as capital is free to flow around, okay, for, uh, across the globe, which basically means that such industry can come up in the south, which can take advantage of the low wages. But on the other hand, even that which was responsible for some processes shifting, you know, like China, Vietnam, Indonesia, some service sector activities shifting to India, like call centers and so on and so forth, it did not really impact as much on the reserve army of labor, on the army of unemployment and so on. But on the other hand, it did actually give rise to high rates of GDP growth and so on. But even that is now being stopped. You see, because, because now protectionism mm -hmm. began under Obama, continued under Trump, and continues even now. So, so the thing is that, you know, that this argument about skilled and unskilled, the point is that that dichotomy itself, the fact that skilled workers are confined only to the temperate region, the advanced countries, unskilled workers to the third world countries is precisely a symptom of imperialism. I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. In other words, no, 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 no. It this, makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I mean, this, this division, this division itself is really a symptom of, of, of imperialism. No, it makes perfect sense. And on that note, do you? Are you concerned at all that these kinds of technological advances um, that require, you know, end up requiring fewer workers, even for in the case of agriculture, um, could actually make workers in the global south less relevant and even more expendable? Because there's other people who make the argument, oh, technological advances are great because it means nobody has to work as much. But then it means labor isn't needed as much, right? Exactly. You know, suppose you have a hundred persons producing a good. Suppose you have a technology that in, that doubles labor productivity, then you require 50 people producing the, that good. Now, if you had everybody, all hundred employed, getting the same wage as before, but doing half the work, okay? That's fine because then their <laughs> exactly their, their leisure has gone up. And that's the kind of thing that can actually happen in principle in a socialist economy. Right. Or alternatively, you can, you can have actually have uh, people, you know, I mean, kind of uh, going on a holiday or, or, or whatever, but, but getting the same amount. Now, what happens under capitalism is that if you introduce that technology, then 50 people are thrown out of work. If 50 people are thrown out of work, they join the reserve army of labor. Therefore, nobody's wages rise at all. Okay. And if nobody's wages rise at all, then 50 people are left exactly where they were. 50 people are thrown out of the work. Profits of the capitalists have increased. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the working people on average are much worse off. Okay, so 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 the point is the social conditions within which technological progress exists. That's essential. Mm. That's the question we should be asking. That's right. Um, and then I know these are kind of like not necessarily connected questions, but I wanted to do the bulk of what I what I really wanted to ask you first, and now get to these kind of I would call them bonus questions. But um, can you explain why export crops cause food scarcity and poverty? Yeah, 
you see, sub, you know, as as, as I said, <coughs> okay, the tropical land mass, <coughs> the land mass in <coughs> tropical or semi-tropical countries is given. You could have an increase in this land, effective increase in this land mass, what we call land augmenting technological change, land augmenting practices, for instance, irrigation and so on, which allows multiple cropping or which can raise the land productivity. You can have that. But typically for that, you require state intervention. You can't have large irrigation projects without the state in investing in them. Similarly, you cannot really have land augmenting practices without research and development being undertaken, typically by the state, which can then make it available as far as the presence are concerned. But on the other hand, if you de I mean, if you enfeeble the state, which is what neoliberalism does, then the state is, is not very relevant. The state doesn't do any of these things. Research and development by the state is uh, comes to a stop. Uh, irrigation investment comes to a stop, etc. Now, therefore, the typical situation in capitalism, what I'm saying about state doing all this was a brief period after the Second World War when you had post-decolonization third world governments, many of which really did not want to kowtow to capitalism and therefore did uh, a, a certain amount of attempt to shift away from the kind of division of labor that capitalism had put, put their countries into. But now under neoliberalism, we once more have, let us say, the usual uh, kind of logic of capitalism making itself felt. Now, in that logic, therefore, land augmentation is out. And if you are going to grow, I mean, suppose larger exports have to be undertaken, then it could be export of food crops itself, in which case less is available as far as the domestic population is concerned. Or it could be export of cash crops, and these cash crops have to be grown, and they have to be grown on land originally devoted to food crops. Therefore, again, there's a reduction in food availability. The classic example of this is Africa. You see, in Africa, there was a series of famines, a series of famines which occurred. Africa used to grow its own food grains, but on the other hand, it was persuaded when it was became part of the neoliberal universe to move away to export crops and therefore gave up its food grain production and thinking that we are going to import food grains and export our export crops. But the point is that if you export your export crops, then you see, Suppose to grow an export crop, you require, let us say, I mean, let's say there's a, there's a piece of land. On that piece of land, you are growing food grains uh, worth $10, let us say. And now you start growing export crops, again, let us say, worth $10 or $15 or whatever. But on the other hand, out of this $15, because it's an export cash crops, some multinational would be involved in marketing it and so on. I mean, after all, the peasants are not going to market it. And therefore, you'd find that the income of the domestic population out of this $15, maybe let's say $5. Originally, when they were growing food crops, their income was $10. So they had $10 of income with which they bought $10 of food. 
if they have five dollars of income even assuming food grains are available for import they can only import five dollars of food grains and therefore food self-sufficiency has been impaired uh, food security has been impaired and the extent of hunger has increased as far as the population is concerned so 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 the point is that exporting food grains on the argument you are going to import is something which is not a valid argument because when you export it also has a whole pattern of income and demand generation which mm -hmm. has to be taken into account now is there, do you think, a way to strengthen national sovereignty to delink the South from the North that exploits it without promoting this kind of dangerous return to nationalism that some people warn of? You know, I, for a start, I, I would not call all nationalism dangerous. Okay. Uh, nationalism that is used to justify colonialism nationalism that is underlying fascism is something that i would consider dangerous but nationalism let's say anti-colonial nationalism which is an inclusive nationalism that does not separate one community inside the country from another community that does not create hatred between communities but on the other hand is inclusive is something which I would welcome. In fact, most of the third world really emerged as nation in the anti-colonial struggle. And that kind of ideology we, which bound them as, as, as a nation, which is a kind of nationalism, is something which I welcome. Now, it is true, of course, that, that you know, I mean, you see every effort to promote the dangerous divisive nationalism is not an effort meant to delink from neoliberalism. In fact, neoliberal—that's my argument on neofascism. Neoliberalism actually promotes divisive nationalism because you know, a Modi. Modi is not interested in delinking. On the contrary, he's interested in actually tightening the relation between India. And, and and the advanced capitalist countries. Bolsonaro is not interested in delinking. Therefore, the kind of inclusive nationalism that wants to delink is something which I welcome. And there is no danger as far as that nationalism is concerned. The danger arises with the fascistic nationalism that doesn't want to delink, that actually wants to continue with the neoliberal order. That's good to know what that differentiates the two. And then, you know, I, I'm curious about the issue of imperialism in academia, um, especially in economic analysis in academia, has been left out uh, in recent decades. Why is that? And is there a growing debate now about imperialism um, and what it means? I assume your book may have, you know, perhaps provoked a new debate, I hope. You know, economics is the most ideological subject. In fact, within the social sciences and humanities, economics is the most ideological subject. Uh, I find after our book was written, people inviting me to give talks here and there, but they invariably belong to literature, 
critical right. studies, anthropology, and so on. But no economics department had actually called me. No, because That's economics wild. is extremely ideological. Uh, you know, I mean, for Marx, for instance, would be taught in 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 all kinds of other disciplines, but rarely in economics. I mean, if if he's taught in economics, only the kind of bare bones of Marx, and 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 he would be presented essentially as a post-Ricardian, as Samuelson said, a minor post-Ricardian thinker. So so the thing is that you know, economics is where the real class struggle in the realm of ideas is being fought out among the social sciences. That's sad to hear because obviously, and you've argued this, the, you know, Marxism is so essential to understanding the world today, especially in economics. In the US, we have these entire departments that are just funded by the Koch brothers, these economics departments at universities. I guess maybe India isn't so, so different uh, when it comes to these, these economics departments. Um, and then I guess like one of the, the last things I wanna ask you about is more related to what's happening today. Um, how does the competition for access to the COVID vaccine fit into your analysis or does it? You know, we were, re you know, we were seeing from the US uh, when that India was kind of creating all these or, or producing the raw materials for the vaccines, but then was unable to actually access any vaccines because of US policies, it seemed. so. Do you see that analysis of imperialism in the issue of the COVID vaccine and its availability? Yes, absolutely. I believe that the biggest ally of the coronavirus in its killing spree has been capitalist property relations mm -hmm. because of the fact that the reason why much of the third world has been excluded from these vaccines is because of the patent rights. Now, India and South Africa had really requested to the WTO and, and almost a hundred other countries supported them that these patent rights, there should be a temporary waiver on. Now, fortunately now, even Joe Biden's administration has supported this. But on the other hand, large numbers of European countries, including Germany are opposed to it. Even negotiations in the uh, WTO are going to drag on and on and on. Boris Johnson has just said a couple of days ago that he going to raise at the G7 the idea of universal vaccination, but to be completed by 2022. That means a year from even the current, the, 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 the forthcoming December, by which time millions would have died. So that, you know, really speaking, the intellectual, and, and it's, it's not even clear that, that the negotiations are going to actually end in the completion of the waiver, temporary waiver on patent rights and vaccines. And mind you, much of these vaccines had been developed with public money. Mm -hmm. with, with research that was funded by public money. So these drug multinationals, which are opposing it, are not even the ones that actually put in a lot of money. They, they, they put taxpayers' money in order to develop these drugs. And now they insist that they have a patent on this, which means profiteering from people's distress. Now, even the population in the advanced countries, majority of people in the United States, about 57%, they don't want these patents on, on, on these vaccines. So the thing is that, you know, given the fact that the most effective way of controlling the virus is through universal vaccination, 
the biggest hurdle to universal vaccination is the output of the vaccines and of course the price as well because once you have restrictions on output then then the the prices go up um, and and anyway if it's done through pr- the ages of of the private sector then people have to pay prices so then you find that actually the ability of the third world to introduce universal vaccination gets impaired the the only two things they can do one is compulsory licensing which means that you know whether there is a patent waiver or not you just produce it which actually wto rules allow in the case of national emergency this is a national emergency but on the other hand that is something which most advanced country governments are completely opposed to so if you did compulsory licensing they might retaliate in various ways the second issue in this again is that you know even assuming that there is production of uh even assuming there's there's produ- production of these vaccines taking place uh but on the other hand in order to make it universal and free they have to be subsidized by the government right now the point is most third world countries as you said earlier uh, are really fiscally bound and 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 they are bound by imf conditionalities not to raise their fiscal deficit not to de- to deficit financing so so that you know even then people may be forced to pay for these vaccines which would again exclude large numbers of them so what is required on the one hand is waiving the patents and on the other is to actually make a grant to countries to poor countries so that you know by the by the richer by the advanced countries so that they can actually provide these vaccines free to their population yeah you were talking about this dichotomy earlier and it seems like the situation we're in now you know i was just in the us a month ago and the vaccine is free it's very easy to get it's been right. widely yeah. uh, given to many people so life is really returning to a uh, normal in many ways like you don't really have to wear masks anymore in some places uh people are going back to work whereas you no know, back being back in Lebanon it's like you're you know you're sort of at the mercy of these rolling lockdowns where every time it gets bad again you have to shut down and there's more economic devastation as a result and so it's just going to i guess increase that sort of third world first world inequality to a pretty extreme degree um which is very unfortunate but that said i mean i guess the last thing i would wonder and you sort of alluded to this earlier is you know oftentimes when we think about capitalism we think about or at least you know i think about maybe us in the west in the leftists in the west think about you know a cabal of people sitting in a room just you know maniacally planning um how to be parasites <laughs> um around the world but it seems like more of a system in autopilot i mean it just kind of you know it it's not really preplanned at this point it's just a globalized system would you agree with that it's a globalized system that just keeps going in the same direction oh yes oh, oh, oh yes absolutely in fact i think you know one of marx's greatest contributions was to see capitalism as a spontaneous system as a, a system that grows on its own with no kind of planning and so on you see even the state which is supposed to intervene in at, at various points of time is also bound by this spontaneity marx actually referred to the capitalists as capital personified 
In other words, the logic of capital makes itself felt. You see, it's a system in which there are various people, the workers, capitalists, and so on. The logic of the system makes itself and uh, works itself out through everybody acting in ways where it appears that everybody has agency, but as a matter of fact, because of competition, everybody is forced to act in particular ways because of ways the system grows or, or develops on its own. Now, it's it's actually quite remarkable. It's true that when the workers combine to form trade unions and so on, they are going against the logic of the system. They, 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 they might change the system, etc., which is what Marx himself visualized, Lenin visualized, and so on. Politics being brought to them and so on. They're going beyond the system. But the logic of the system is that it's a spontaneous system. Okay. The system that grows on its own. Now, in that spontaneous system, as I said, you can think in terms of different phases, which are not planned out. But on the other hand, uh, there are certain things which are accepted by the system, certain things which are not accepted by the system, depending upon the actual situation. Uh, Keynesian demand management was not accepted by the system in the interwar period, but in the post-Second World War period, when the system was threatened, and Keynesian demand management got accepted because they had no choice, but on the other hand, got subverted over a period of time. The kind of dichotomy I'm talking about today is, is, is again going to perhaps characterize capitalism in the days to come. It appears at one level, you see, it appears at one level, and, and, and not wrongly, that it's a leftward move under capitalism. You know, Biden is being influenced by the left, which in a sense he is. But on the other hand, if you take the dichotomy into mind, in, in, into, into account, then while Biden may be influenced by the left, but the third world is having to bear the burden of austerity, then that left doesn't matter because then basically it is imperialism. Okay. Yes, that's what we that's the that's what we have to contend with in the US. And that I hope that people who are watching who are uh, in the U.S. Can, can recognize and understand. Professor Prabhat Patnayak, thank you so much for spending an hour and a half with me uh, going through all these issues. We really appreciate the, all the research uh, and work you've produced and wisdom you've imparted. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.